Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. In this episode, I am going to relay a story that I researched, and I got onto the trail of this story from a small mention in one article that covered a lot of the crimes of the early 1800s. And when I first looked into this story and tried to find out more information on it, I ran into a brick wall because I couldn't find any reference to the story beyond that article. And so I set it aside for quite a long time, and then I recently revisited it and took a new approach to researching it, and I was able to piece together the story from a series of articles. And as it unfolded, it became quite a fascinating chapter in Battle Creek history. So I call this story The Death of a Giant, The Murder of Robert Mullinow. So come along and join me, and I'll take you through the story that I found going down this rabbit hole and where it led me. So this story takes place in Battle Creek, Michigan in 1875. And on the corner of Main Street and Jefferson Street at that time in Battle Creek. And those streets today are Michigan Avenue and Capitol Avenue. So right in the heart of downtown Battle Creek, this story takes place. On the corner of Main Street and Jefferson Street in Battle Creek in 1875, there once stood the New Chicago Clothing House, which was owned by a man named J.M. Jacobs. Jacobs' store boasted clothing specializing in furs, hats, caps, scarves, gloves, coats, neckties, collars, and suspenders. And that was all in their regular advertisements in the newspapers. The store, although primarily a men's clothing store, also carried children's clothing, as well as things like linens and tablecloths and napkins and that sort of thing that you might find useful in the home. In the basement of his store, there was another business, and that was a saloon, and it was owned by a man named Samuel Hodges. And inside the saloon, when you went down the stairs into the basement from the street, were two rooms. One was where billiards were played, and it also included a bit of a dining room, and off to side there must have been a kitchen back in there. And the other room was a room that was used for playing cards. Men from all over the area would venture down to the saloon during the daytime, having lunch, and sometimes in the evening, and they would play cards, play billiards, smoke cigars, eat food, and enjoy some drinks. The drink specialty of the house was typically beer. So that's the setting of this story back in 1875. So shortly after one o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, October 1st, 1875, a group of four men were playing cards, which of course included some gambling. And at the table was a man named Emery Nye. Sitting there alongside him was a man named Thomas Betts, John Chambers, and Robert Farrell. Now, Thomas Betts 
was the brother-in-law of Emery Nye. The two had rode into town together in a carriage, and that carriage was parked across the street along with its horses from the saloon. Both Nye and Betts were known in the community for their checkered past. These were young men in their 20s. Well, at least I was able to verify that Nye was in his mid-20s. I assume that his brother-in-law was of similar age because they tended to hang out together. John Chambers, another man at the table, was the oldest man there, and he was 60 years old. He was a veteran of the Civil War, and sitting next to John was Robert Farrell, an Irish tailor who'd lived in Battle Creek since the spring of 1864. Now, in the adjoining room, while these men were playing cards, a man named Robert Molyneux arrived, and he intended to have lunch in the saloon, and he'd ordered some food. He ran into a man named Theron Mason, and they were chatting together in the billiard room, which was also the dining area. Now, Robert had been in the Civil War, and also Theron Mason had been in the Civil War. Theron had been a lieutenant in the Civil War, and he was originally from Bellevue, Michigan, and had moved to Battle Creek at the close of the war. Robert, who was 36 years old, was a giant of a man, and he had been a Civil War veteran who had been wounded in action in 1863, serving with Company C, the 2nd Michigan Infantry. Now, Robert was described as one that would be a very muscular man, and he towered over others. So we can assume that he was somewhere in the realm of six foot four, maybe as big as six foot six, based on the description of him being one of the largest men in the room and regarded as a fighter and a muscular man. However, he was also a father of four children, had a wife, and he lived in Jefferson Township and was in town, presumably on business of some sort, and had just stopped in for lunch. Everyone who knew him referred to him as more of a gentle kind of guy and a decent individual. But he was also an Irishman, and he was known for his strength and his skills as a fighter. Robert and Theron were waiting for the food, and while they were waiting, they walked over to the doorway of the card room to watch the game in progress. The men around the table were playing for beer on this early afternoon. And while Robert and Theron watched, Chambers was beaten in the game. That was John Chambers, the older man. After losing his hand, he was required to pay for the round of beer. And he did so, and at that point, he settled his debt with the group and made it known that he no longer wanted to continue playing and started to get up from the table. And when he stood up and began to move away from the table, Emery Nye was not willing to accept his departure. He insisted that Chambers sit back down and continue playing. Chambers held steadfast in his determination not to play another hand. Nye, however, became insistent and demanded, how shall we say, very vociferously that he do so. The argument became very heated and voices were raised, and neither man was giving on their position. Witnesses described at this point that hard words were exchanged between Nye and Chambers, and neither were backing down on this matter. At that point, 
Molyneux stepped in between the two and talked to them in an effort to get them both to cool down. The two seemed to quiet down after Robert interceded, but shortly after he walked away, their argument began again. Nye was insisting that Chambers play, and Chambers was refusing to do so. And then Nye and Betts, his brother-in-law, both struck Chambers with their fists in this exchange. At this point, Molyneux interceded. This time, he told Nye not to abuse an old man and that he should leave Chambers alone. At this declaration, Thomas Betts stepped up to confront Molyneux, and he became threatening, and he demanded to know what Robert had to do with the matter, and what did he want to have come of it. Molyneux looked at Betts and told him it suited him just fine that something were to come of it, and both men began to take off their coats. The two men went at each other, and Molyneux, being the stronger man, struck Betts so hard it threw him bodily off his feet into the corner of the room. So you can see how this is going. Molyneux was definitely the Jack Reacher-sized character in the room, if you guys follow that uh, show on Netflix. Seeing his brother-in-law tossed aside by the larger man, Nye entered the fray and charged him. Molyneux struck Nye hard, tossing him across the room as well, landing him on his back, also in the corner of the room. Betts at this time, having regained his footing, began to charge Molyneux again. But this time, Robert Farrell checked him, preventing him from attacking Molyneux again and continuing the fight. So while Molyneux was standing there and facing Betts in a stare-down, and the two being separated by Robert Farrell, Nye got on his feet. He covertly pulled a knife out of his coat and stabbed Robert in the stomach before swiftly darting up the stairs and out the front door of the saloon. Molyneux instantly clutched at his bowels and exclaimed that he'd been cut. He passed through the billiard room and up the stairs into the street. He would stumble once at the top of the stairs and right himself, and he uttered a cry for help, and then he collapsed on the street. Molyneux would lose consciousness and die in the street from his wound within minutes. So he died right at the corner of Jefferson and Main, or Capitol and Michigan Avenue today. Meanwhile, Nye, who had made it to his carriage after he ran out of the saloon, was quickly taking off down the street with the horse at a gallop. Betts, seeing that he had been left behind, ran up and out of the saloon and ran following the carriage down the street. Seeing the two men run from the saloon and also seeing Molyneux collapse in the street, a police officer named Briggs who was walking a beat in the neighborhood, began a foot pursuit. Nye would stop the carriage down the street about three blocks down, just long enough to allow Betts to climb in aboard, and then the two set the horse off again at a rapid pace. Officer Briggs would later arrest both of them at Nye's residence and escort them to the Justice Hall downtown. The two were taken before Judge Hall, and he ordered them placed on an express train to Marshall and to be detained pending an inquiry and any potential charges based on the outcome of that inquiry. 
The body of Robert Molyneux was carried to the Michigan Tribune building nearby, and it was examined by a coroner who determined that the wound was caused by a blade or some sharp-pointed cutting instrument. He was ultimately buried at Young Cemetery off of Gogwak Road a few days later. Now, witnesses came forth to testify to the events that happened that day in the saloon, and others also testified to seeing Betts and Nye bury the murder weapon in their backyard, which was later excavated and presented at trial. Emery Nye's defense initially tried to deny the stabbing, but when the knife and the witness testimony was presented, the defense attorney switched the arguments to one of self-defense. The prosecution brought a wave of testimony that the deceased was a peaceable man. The jury agreed, and they brought a decision of guilty of murder in the first degree on Emery Nye. Now, Emery Nye, having been convicted of murder, he erupted in the courtroom, and he told the judge that he did not care if he was given 40 years in prison. He exclaimed to the judge and everyone present in the courtroom that human life was held in light esteem by him and that this was not the first time that he had done such a thing. The judge, making the determination that Nye was a man devoid of all moral character, who had no care for the rights or souls of others, sentenced him to life in prison. Now, witnesses at the trial described Nye as being as dead as the Frankenstein monster, with no countenance or emotion when the awful details of his act were revealed in court. Nye was only 24 years old, and he was alleged at the trial to have been raised in a house of prostitution. His mother, present at the trial, was said to have been the madam of six to eight of these institutions in the county at the time of the trial. Ellen Molyneux, Robert's wife, openly wept in the courtroom. The citizens of Marshall were present during the trial and were outraged at Nye's oration within the courtroom. And the papers claimed they rejoiced knowing the evil man was going to be expelled from the county. The sheriff took Nye to Jackson Prison within a few days, and he remained there a year when a new trial was held on his appeal. The outcome of that trial was that the charges were reduced from murder to manslaughter, and his sentence reduced to 25 years. Now, that's an interesting thing because I came across that a few times in studying court cases from that era, and many times defense attorneys, either in the preliminary trial or in an appeal, were able to get murder charges changed from first-degree murder to manslaughter. A similar case that I can cite as an example was the one with Leonard Starkweather, who deliberately beat his wife to death with a baseball bat, and he had his charges reduced to manslaughter as opposed to first-degree murder, which the prosecution was trying to succeed in getting him charged with. So there was a lot of um, fluidity, I suppose you might say, with the court during that period in regards to the line between a first-degree murder charge, which shows intent 
from based on any definition that I've ever seen, and manslaughter, which is uh, not intending to kill. But um, in the case of Robert Molyneux, his killer got away with a charge being reduced to manslaughter and only served 25 years in prison. So Betts was also charged as an accessory, and a trial was held in Marshall in December. He appears to have been released and the charges being dismissed, probably based on witness testimony that it was really a bar fight up to that point, and it wasn't that he wasn't involved with the attempted murder. However, in February of 1876, Betts was arrested again, and this time for burglary in Battle Creek. And while waiting for his trial on that case, he attempted to escape the jail in Marshall, and was caught, and in an effort to exonerate another inmate who was caught with him, he claimed it was entirely his own plan, and he was solely responsible for the escape attempt. Now, he had attempted a similar testimony in the Molyneux murder case. In an effort to exonerate Nye, he was claiming it was his responsibility for starting the fight with Robert. And the judge and the jury, with the help of the prosecution, gave no weight to his testimony, as it was clear that from all the other witness testimony that it was Nye who committed the murder. So Ellen Molyneux would sue the saloon owner, Samuel Hodges, for damages in the loss of her husband in 1876. Based on what I was able to find, and there's not a whole lot of information on this, the case seems to have been settled for $10,000, a value of around $277,000 in today's dollars. She would also apply for Robert's widow's pension in 1890, so she would wait a few years before doing that for his service in the Civil War. Now, that could have been because some of the rules changed with widow's pensions around that time, or maybe the pensions were only released in 1890. But for whatever reason, she did not apply for that in 1875, when he actually died. She would pass away in 1896 from pneumonia, followed by a bout with typhoid fever at the age of 56. And she was living in the Washington, D.C. area at that time. John Chambers, the man who Robert was protecting, the 60-year-old Civil War veteran, he would live to the age of 75 and pass away in 1891. He's buried at Reese Cemetery in Springfield, Michigan. Robert Farrell, one of the other men at the table, and the one that tried to prevent Betts from getting back in the fight with Molyneux, he passed away in 1884, and he's buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Battle Creek. Lieutenant Theron Mason, who was also witness to all of these events, he was the man that was um, having a meal with Robert Molyneux, he passed away at Nichols Hospital in Battle Creek at the age of 60 in 1903. He had been admitted with a heart condition, and he contracted pneumonia. Now, he's buried at Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek, and today his tombstone is almost completely consumed by a tree that was planted next to his grave at the time of his death. I have filmed his tombstone before, and that's how his name was familiar to me when I was researching this story as his tombstone is about one half covered by this tree. It's quite unique. And um, there's not a whole lot of them out there, but I I guess if you explore a lot of old cemeteries, you find that. I have seen 
cases of that up at Bedford Cemetery, and there are a few other ones around town on some of these older cemeteries. Where you look at this big tree, and you look closely at the base, and suddenly you see this piece of a stone sticking out, and it's actually a headstone that the tree grew over over time. And that's the case of Lieutenant Theron Mason's tombstone. An interesting story ran in the Hillsdale Standard in March of 1876 regarding this case of the Robert Molyneux murder. And it described a Kalamazoo man showing up in Murphy's Saloon in Battle Creek. This is another saloon that was downtown around that time. And he remarked loudly in the saloon, It's a good thing that Bob Molyneux, who was killed by Emery Nye, was out of the way. And at this statement, a young man from the country jumped up. And when he got through with that stranger, he was described as well-pounded as an individual. So this young man from the country took exception to that statement. Obviously, he knew Robert Molyneux, and he laid a licking on this guy. And those that watched the encounter all shouted, good, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) But it was what the funny part of the whole thing is it was later discovered that this stranger turned out to have been Emery Nye's brother. So there you go. That's the complete story of the murder of Robert Molyneux. And I'm including this story in a book that I'm writing on true crime from the 1800s. This is just one of the shorter stories in the series of stories that I've researched. And it's just an interesting one, probably more so for the atmosphere of the bars and the saloons and the interaction that I encountered in researching the story on this. And you really get the picture of the scene at the time in these saloons and bars that were existing in 1875 in downtown Battle Creek. I also found it particularly interesting that the mother of Emery Nye was stated to have been involved in houses of prostitution in Calhoun County. This was the first time that I had found actual written references referring to houses of prostitution in Calhoun County. Now, other historians may be out there nodding, saying, oh, yeah, they existed and so on. And it's logical that they did, but I had not seen it openly mentioned before in articles that I had researched. I had a guest on, Amarose Hammond, who's an author, and she's written a few books on both Grand Rapids and Ottawa County about the history of prostitution around that time during the Gilded Age, which is right in the middle of this time period when Robert Molyneux was killed. And prostitution and houses of prostitution were very common up there in Grand Rapids, and over in Muskegon, and also in uh, Grand Ledge, as well as Kalamazoo. So it's not surprising that I'm starting to find references to it having existed in Calhoun County. And one of them must have existed right here in Battle Creek because the story alluded to the house that Nye and Betts were living at as Betts was his brother-in-law. They were staying at Nye's mother's house, and the women there objected to him being arrested, and it was later mentioned that that was a house of prostitution. So he was staying in a house of prostitution, which was his mother's house, and the women there 
were prostitutes, based on what I was able to determine from the article. So that's an interesting story, and if I explore and find more details on that chapter of history in Calhoun County, I'm certainly going to make a special episode on that as well. But like I said, that was the first time I'd encountered it. So this whole story about the murder of Robert Molyneux was quite an interesting researching project for me. And as a whole, it's it's not that exciting of a murder. I mean, it was a stabbing in a bar and a guy died and that sort of thing. But it's kind of sad. It was uh, He was a Civil War hero. He was trying to do the right thing and protect an older man that was going to get beat up by two younger men. And he stepped in and um, the guy killed him. So very sad story in the end and a very sad story that he was the father of four children and he left a widow behind that was uh, obviously grief-stricken at his loss. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history, exploring this story, which I call Death of a Giant, the Murder of Robert Molyneux from 1875. If you enjoyed this story and you found it interesting, please take some time to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on. And a few kind words would also be greatly appreciated to help other people find out about the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, there are ways to donate on my website, michaeldelaware.com, right there in the top title bar. You can make a monthly reoccurring donation of $1 if you'd like using the Libra Pay option that I have there. And every little bit helps to fund the work that I'm doing on this podcast and bringing you history every week. A lot of the uh, applications and things I use require subscriptions and funding, and every little bit helps to offset some of that cost. But until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet an even more fascinating story from Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.